0: Now, let me ask you, particularly men, have you ever asked for directions? No, that's right. A real man never asked for directions. And, uh, and, of course, i got to take our young people back. Believe it or not, there was a time when we did not have a GPS. I remember Teresa going on her trip years ago, and she said, Keith, Carol's got this amazing thing. It tells you where to turn. It tells you to turn around. It's unbelievable. So that was a GPS in our first exposure. But before that, I used to travel back in the early 80s. I would worked with an organization called FCA, the Future Christians of America. No, it's Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I traveled a lot. And I used to speak in high schools and the churches and assemblies and did that for five years. And I told somebody before I went to work with FCA, I was an unknown failure as a speaker. And when I got through, I was a known failure as a speaker. But I remember one time traveling to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was speaking at McEachern High School. I was traveling with Roy Carter. Roy is the state director for FCA in Georgia. And we were lost. We couldn't find McEachern High School. So we stopped and we asked a guy, said, uh, sir, can you tell us how to get to McEachern High School? And he said, no, I never heard of it. And then he said, oh, wait a second. Is that the school with the statue in front of it? And Roy said, yeah, that's the one. Oh, go six lights, take a left, four lights, take a left, right, two lights, and it's on your left. Roy and I looked at each other. Did he have some kind of divine revelation? To go from never having heard of the place to six lights, four lights, two lights, I mean, it was unbelievable. But we got clear directions to where we were going. Romans chapter 10, our passage this morning, 5 through 13, gives us the clearest directions of how a person can be right with God in all of the Bible. The clearest directions, and yes, (laughs) it comes to us by revelation. By revelation. Let's stand in honor of God's word as I read beginning in verse five. I'll read over you and pray over you this morning. For Moses writes that the man who practices the law, who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's remain standing for prayer. And as we pray, let's remember today the Howell family, Miss Chris Howell passed away. And the Baird family, Mr. Gene Baird passed away this week. We had his funeral service. And also uh, Bertha Madison's brother, Mr. James Wesley passed away. So uh, these are grieving and we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our hope is in Christ, but we want to pray for him as we pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather in this place to worship you and to know, Father, that you are in this place. Your spirit is here. And, God, we pray that you would speak to each of our hearts today, Father. I pray especially for the Howell family, the Baird family, and, Lord, for the Madison family. Lord, as uh, they've, they've experienced death, the death of a loved one, Lord, may your peace and your grace just flood them today. Your presence is what they need the most as well. God, we pray that as we study your word today, that you would speak to our hearts, Father, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me remind you, we started last week, and this is what Paul is saying. It begins in chapter 9, verse 30, that the Jews were striving to attain the righteousness of God, but they missed it. Why did they miss it? Because they were trying to become righteous in the eyes of God through the law or by their works. But Paul points out that the Gentiles who were not striving for righteousness, but yet they found righteousness because they came to the Lord in faith. So Paul is continuing to contrast the, you could say the Jews with the Gentiles or law with grace or works with faith. There's several contrasts we could talk about. But that's what Paul's doing in this passage as he continues here today. So as we're talking about God being righteous with God, what does that look like? What does it look like for us as sinful human beings to be in a right relationship with the holy God? This Thursday morning in my quiet time, I was reading Psalm 96 and I want to share just a couple verses this morning that God used in my heart to kind of bring this point home. In Psalm 96, verse seven, it says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. That's important. You got to remember that ascribe to the Lord, the glory of his name. His name is glorious. And he does have a name. He does have a name. His name is glorious. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now this is NIV. King James says, in the beauty of his holiness. God's holiness is beautiful. God's holiness is splendid. It is glorious. Tremble before him. All the earth. Now, think about a couple of phrases. The splendor, the beauty of his holiness. The glory of his name. I think one of the problems we have today is we, we forget how great God is. And we come to passages like we have today and we're so familiar with it. You confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all know. Now, hey, let's think today as we begin about the beauty of God's holiness. The splendor of his holiness, the glory of God's name. Paul is trying to tell us today how you and and me, puny, sinful, little human beings can have a relationship with a God like that. It really is amazing. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, so just get ready to, to, to go there. But look at verse five where we start this morning. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. So this is a a quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. We'll look at it more in just a minute. But here's what I want you to know. God's righteousness, and we can say holiness, the splendor of his holiness, the glory of his righteousness is revealed in the law. We see that in verse 5. That there is life, there is life, there is God's righteousness is revealed to us in the law. Now, when I say the law, I'm talking about, you know, the Old Testament, but specifically the first five books, which are called the books of the law. In these five books, we have the kind of the character of God revealed to us who God is, his holiness, his righteousness. Okay, so here's the question. How can an awesome, holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful, rebellious people? How can that happen? Well, God made a way. And we find this in the Old Testament. God made three provisions for us. And we're going to talk about these quickly, not in great depth. But the first was the tabernacle. Who dwelt in the tabernacle? Talk to me. The Lord, the presence of God, the tabernacle. This is where later became the temple, the presence of the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. You know, I love when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt into the promised land, and he met with God in the tent of meeting. And it said, Moses talked to the Lord face to face as a man talks with his friend. Man, that, that didn't happen very often. Why? Because God was a holy God. His, the beauty of his holiness, the splendor of his holiness. No one could just rush into the presence of God. Later in the temple, the Holy of Holies, when the priest would go in, they'd tie a rope around his ankle and they had bells on his clothes so they could hear him jingling around in there. Why? To make sure he's still alive. No jingle. What do they do? Jerk on the rope, drag him out. He's dead because he went into the presence of a holy God. Do you, can you wrap your mind around that? And so the tabernacle remind us that God's presence, that he is a holy God, but yet there was a veil and, and there was a containment so that this holy God could dwell among his people. And, and I love Exodus 33, where Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going to go. I mean, it meant so much to Moses to have the presence of the Lord, but God in his holiness dwelt With his people in such a way they could tolerate it. I mean, just to burst into the presence of God, you'd die just like that. So there was the tabernacle. Then there was the law. God's commandments were given to his people to set his people, the people, apart from all other people. God's commandments were given to the Jews to reveal to him the holiness of his character. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? That's, there's the tabernacle. He's near to us. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? The answer to that question is nobody. Nobody had a law like the Jews. Why? Because it came from God. It is righteous. See, the law was an act of grace. God was revealing himself to his people through the law, revealing his character to his people, his righteousness to his people through the law. The law is beautiful. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 119. Every verse applies to the law of God. The law of God is beautiful. The law, the temple, if they abided by the commandments and all the things that God said about the temple, they could live the law. If you abide by the law, if you obey the law, if they lived in accordance with the law and they did not offend God, they would live, do this, keep these commandments and you have life. What's the flip side? What's the flip side? Disobey and you will perish. Why? Because of the righteousness, the holiness of this awesome, the splendor of this awesome God. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter, uh, excuse me, however, he says, do this and die, okay? If they did not obey the law, and we'll look at it more in just a minute, they will perish, they will, they will die. So they have the tabernacle, the presence of God, the law, the judgments of God. And then there's this system that God gave them called the sacrificial system. And this is where we begin to see our situation. This is where we begin to see the gospel. Because see, where there was disobedience, there was death. Now, the sacrificial system can be very complicated. You look at it, you go back and read the book of Leviticus. If you have any questions, you can ask Zach Pratt. He taught our Sunday School class all through the book of Leviticus. But it's a very complicated system, but yet it was designed for one thing. To provide forgiveness for the people of God when they sinned. You understand that? So who, who would be sacrificed? An animal. The blood of an animal would be sacrificed when the people sin so the people could be forgiven. It, it was kind of like when the, when the prodigal returned, the Sunday school teacher asked the little kids, now when the prodigal returned, who was not happy? And somebody said the older brother and the other kid said, yeah, the fatted calf. You know, they, they weren't happy <laughs> because they were going to be sacrificed. They were going to be dinner. So there was a sacrificial system that was given so that the people could be forgiven, okay? Paul would say where the wages of sin is death. Now, through the temple, through the law, and through the sacrificial system, the Jews knew all about the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, or did they? Look at chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Look at verse 21. But as for Israel, chapter 10, verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Again, stay with me, okay? Because I don't want this to be complicated. But verse five tells us that in the law, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? How? through the temple, through the law, through the sacrificial system. But Paul says the Jews were ignorant. They saw all this. That's why Jesus many times said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He has eyes to see, let him see. They missed it because they were spiritually blind. This, theirs was a willful disobedience, a stubborn and obstinate people. Theirs, if you will, was a willful ignorance they refuse to see the righteousness of God, because they refuse to come to God with faith. And without faith, it's what? Impossible to please God. So there we're seeing the contrast between the Jews' righteousness of their works and the Gentiles' righteousness of faith. So the second point we want to look at, it comes again from verse five: "God's righteousness requires perfect obedience you don't play with God. The temple, the law, and the sacrificial system. His holiness or righteousness demands total obedience. And here's where we see, first of all, God declared his promise. Here's his promise, Leviticus 18.5. He alluded to it. We're going to read it right now. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, By which a man may live if he does them, I am the Lord. Yes, life in the commandments. The commandments are good. Yes, we obey the Lord. And how many times did the nation of Israel say, yes, we will obey the Lord. Yes, we will keep your statutes. Yes, we will love you with all our heart, soul, and mind. And there's life. Do this and live. What a wonderful promise. But what's the other side? Disobey and you die. Disobey and you die. Deuteronomy 30, verse 17. God says, but if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you that you shall surely perish. The wages of sin is death. Obey and live. Disobey and perish. So, all I got to do is obey the law. Man, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstrap. I'm going to read those commandments. I'm going to do everything there written and I'm going to live my life. It is a matter of life and death. Deuteronomy 30, 15. See, God says, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. So what do we say? Choose life. Choose life. I've set before you a choice. Obey and live, disobey and die. According to the Old Testament, according to God's righteousness, according to God's holiness. So God declared his promise. You obey, you live. Very quickly, man discovered his problem a problem that is shared by all of us. The nation of Israel, Jews and Gentiles, we are all incapable of obedience. Our heart, as we said last week, was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We do not have a heart that was capable, they did not have a heart that was capable of obeying the law of God. They needed a new heart, but look, look at Deuteronomy five twenty nine. God says, I'm looking at my people. They're a stubborn, obstinate people. I give them my commandments. I'm talking with Moses on the mountain, giving them the Ten Commandments, and what are my people doing? They give their gold to Aaron. He puts it in the fire, and as Aaron says, this calf just popped out. <laughs> and we're worshiping this calf. While Moses is in the presence of God, getting the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And that was just the beginning of a nation who continually struggled and failed in disobedience. Oh, Deuteronomy 5:29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all com- my commandments. Can you just see God longing for his people? Oh, that they would obey me. But they they don't. They fail. The Lord seeing our problem, determined to fix it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Here's where we can get excited again. He will circumcise the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Do you understand that? In and of ourselves, we're incapable of obeying the law of God. In and of ourselves, we cannot obey so that we can live. But God says, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone. You ever known anybody with a hard heart? A heart of stone? God said, that's characteristic of all my people. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that's pliable and teachable. I will put my spirit within you. And listen, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow. What a gracious God. Our heart is hard. We cannot obey God's law. His his law demands perfection, but we can't do it. So what's God going to do? He's going to give us a new heart. But as we're looking at the Old Testament, looking at this process, the fact that his people were incapable of obedience is made obvious because God determined a provision. In the Old Testament, what was God's provision for man's disobedience? the sacrificial system that we talked about obedience brings life disobedience brings what death again paul would say the wages of sin is death and this truth is illustrated in the old testament sacrificial system the system was a system of death that made provision for the sin of god's people through the sacrifice of a substitute it was a way to be forgiven I remember preaching through Joshua and when Joshua ate, whenever God told Joshua to build an altar and he said to build an altar of stones of uncut stones, stones that have never been touched by human tools. I mean, this is no work of man. This is an act of You build that altar. They made sacrifices for the whole people and they were forgiven. And I remember studying that and I'm thinking, well, here I'm a, I'm going to be gracious. I'm gonna, I'm a 25 year old Jewish boy. And I'm a part of this service. And Joshua, just, the priest just offered sacrifice for my sin. Does he know I lied to my parents? Does he know I stole my neighbor's camel? Does he know all the sin that I've done? And yet he says, I'm forgiven. How could you be forgiven through a, an altar sacrifice? Had to be by faith. Had to be by faith. Yes, I believe God's word. I believe when God says I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. And that 25-year-old Jewish boy was forgiven every day on the, sin, the day of atonement. The sin of the nation was forgiven by the, the, the sacrifice that was offered. So do you see what I'm saying here? The sacrificial system tells us that we're incapable of obeying God's law perfectly. If we were, there would be no need for forgiveness. If we were, there would be no sacrifices. But the sacrificial system was a substitutionary deal where an animal took the place of the people and his blood was shed. So we see just briefly this morning that God's righteousness, verse five, So Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law, how do we practice? We got the temple, we got the law, we got the sacrificial system. That man shall live by that, he shall live by that righteousness. But there's just one problem. We can't do it. We can't do it. The law demands perfection because he's a holy, awesome God. James 2.10 is a verse that helped me understand the gospel. I remember hearing this. I probably heard it all my life, but I understood it as a freshman in college. Perfect obedience is required. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of all. I remember reading that and saying, that's not fair. I mean, you do everything perfect, make one mistake, you're guilty. Yes. Why? Because God's holy the beauty of his holiness, the splendor of his holiness. He cannot tolerate a sinful people. There's got to be another way besides our own righteousness. There's got to be another way besides our own performance to enter into the presence of this holy God. That's what Paul tells us in verses 6 through 13. God's righteousness is received by faith. But the righteousness based on faith, verse 6, speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who would descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Paul says God's righteousness is available, and it's yours by faith. The Gentiles had achieved this righteousness when they were not striving for it. The Jews spent their whole life trying to achieve it. They were striving, they were working for it, and they missed it. Righteousness comes when human efforts are abandoned. How do we know that? Paul's, listen to me, verses 6 through 7 are a loose, I guess a loose, uh, with reference or Paul Paul didn't do his scripture memory perfectly, but they're more of an illustration from the Old Testament than there would be a proof text for his point. Because let me read what the old testament says, okay? You look at verse six and seven, and this is what the Old Testament says, Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse eleven. For this commandment which I am command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Verse 12, it is not in heaven, what? The commandment that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you may say, what, the commandment that you may say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? So Paul said, I mean, the right, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy, the commandment is not in heaven where you've got to go up there and get it. It's not across the sea where you've got to travel to get it. Here's where it is. Verse 14 of Deuteronomy 30. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Paul takes an Old Testament passage and he uses it as an illustration. What's he saying? Stop striving and start trusting. You don't have to go to heaven to get the righteousness of God. God sent heaven to you. You don't have to go down into the abyss or do you have to go into hell? And many people, I think they want it. They feel like, you know, for me to be righteous, I've got to, I've got to punish myself. And this has been the norm for centuries. They they literally put themselves through hell for the penalty of their sin, thinking that they could abuse themselves or punish themselves and that they could pay for themselves the penalty. No. Paul said, you don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. The word of God is near you. Do you, do you see that? The commandment, Deuteronomy 30, is near you. And Paul says the, the gospel is just like the commandment. You can't go to heaven to get it. You can't go to hell. Deuteronomy says you can't go across the sea To find the righteousness of God, human effort has to be abandoned. We can't do it on our own. It's near us. Human effort will not achieve the righteousness of God. Stop striving and start trusting. Salvation is found in Christ who descended from heaven in his incarnation, who ascended from hell in his resurrection. So Paul is using this as a picture. Deuteronomy 30 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. We don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have, maybe you'd say, well, I'm gonna be good enough to get there, kind of like the Tower of Babel. I'll build, no, it'll never work. The word of faith is near you. That's what he says in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Righteousness comes by confessing and believing. And this is so interesting to me. Deuteronomy 30 verse 14. Again, but the word is near you. This is Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, 14. But the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. And so again, Paul takes this and he he says, what is the gospel? It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. With your mouth, you confess that Jesus is Lord. In your heart... You believe that Jesus is alive. Very simple. This is the clearest directions I can give you how to get to heaven from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Don't miss this. In your mouth, confess Jesus is Lord. In your heart, believe Jesus is alive. And we say this all the time. But let's about it, think about this. You know, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles. Says, let's say Jews and particularly the Romans. What does it mean to say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? Well, for the Jew, that was a tough thing to swallow. Because in the, the Greek Old Testament, the word for Lord is the same word used in the Hebrew Old Testament for Yahweh, which meant God. For a Jew to be saved, he has to say with his mouth, Jesus is God. Wow. Now, what would that do for the average Jew? What would that do for the faithful synagogue attending Jewish man or woman? Boom, they're kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus is God? No, Yahweh. Our God's the God of Old Testament. But to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, is not something they would take lightly. How about the Roman? The Roman guy, the church member. To say, Jesus is Lord, every day they declared in Rome, Caesar is Lord. And for a, for a Roman to declare Jesus is Lord would be treason and certain death. As a matter of fact, Christians were convicted and executed as atheists because they refused to believe in the lordship of the Roman Empire. They were non-believers because they believed in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Absolute authority. No, that doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to Jesus. God, Jesus is God. So do you see, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, that Jesus is alive, what do you do? You step out of the parade of your culture. You step out of sync with what everybody else is doing. This is a major confession. This is a major profession of faith. And many people today take it so lightly. Believe, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that Jesus is alive and you will be saved. The resurrection, if a Jew confessed and believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Again, he was kicked out of the synagogue because see, the resurrection proved the validity of everything that Jesus said. The Jews had him put to death. But at the resurrection, God said, he is my son. He is the Messiah. I love Acts 17, 31. It says, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's that word. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by doing what? By raising him from the dead. The resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, validates everything about the Christian faith. So salvation, the righteousness of God, we can have a relationship with this, the the God who dwells in the beauty of his holiness, the God who has the glorious name. This awesome God, we can have a relationship with him by confessing with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. God not only forgives us, he gives us his righteousness. And when you do this, you step out of the world's parade. This righteousness, finally, Paul says in verse 13, it's a righteousness which comes to all who call. See, two of the reasons the Jews rejected the gospel is because, number one, it was, it was based on faith, not on works. It was against the law. Paul taught against the law, so they said. Salvation is the completion of the law. So they rejected it because it was based on, on a grace, not the law. They also didn't like the idea that it was available to everybody. We're God's people. But now the gospel said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the Jews rejected the gospel. You know, there are people today with similar situations. You know, if I could ascend to heaven, if I could build a tower and be saved, I'd do that. If I could go to hell and beat myself up, I would do that. But just simply believe the gospel. Confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in my heart that Jesus is alive. Surely there's more to it than that. The gospel requires faith. He offers sinners not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the righteousness of God. Anyone who believes that Jesus is God's Messiah, who has died and been raised from the dead, and who confesses him as Lord, that person will be saved, Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. The gospel requires and I don't like this term, but we have to make a, a decision. We have to make a commitment, we, but also we have to take a stand. We have to, as I said, I love that phrase, step out of the world's parade. The gospel demands that, that we confess Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? He's Lord of my life. He is the ultimate authority in my life. And I believe God raised him from the dead. Confession that Jesus is, is Lord acknowledges that we had changed sides, We've forsaken sin and self-righteousness and we've turned to God and placed our faith in him for our righteousness. So, verse 13. Whoever will call on the Lord will be saved. There's the promise, right? Is that what it says? Whoever will call on the Lord will be saved. Look at it a little closer. Because see, there are a lot of people who say, you know, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. They get in a bind and I'm, I'm trusting in the man upstairs. Lord, help me. Calling on the Lord has never saved anybody. What does the scripture say? Do you see it? I want you to see this. Call on what? The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. The Bible says that the Lord has a name. And it's a glorious name. The Bible says that the Lord has a name. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Calling on the Lord never saved anybody. But calling on Jesus has saved everybody. Everybody who's called on that name will be saved. The name of the Lord, the glory of his name. His name represents all that he is. He is holy, righteous, righteous and merciful. He's made a way for us not only to know him, but to become his children. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, Jesus is alive, and you will never be the same. You will never be the same. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, may we be